This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And just before we get started, a quick update on our upcoming live Israel podcast tour. Very excited for that. We have some incredible guests already lined up, hoping to do between 20 and 30 live interviews, which will then be slow released over the ensuing months. Quite a few, again, already lined up. A reminder, you can still contribute at our GoFundMe page by going to GoFundMe.com slash know. And as well, you can suggest guests either on Facebook or by emailing JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And there's so much that we're looking forward to on this trip. We know they're going to enjoy every interview that we do and the unique perspectives and features we're able to bring you as a result of this special excursion. And without further ado, let's get to this week's program. We are here with Sarah Stern, the founder and director of Emmets, the Endowment for Middle East Truth, and also uh, a neighbor of mine. How are you, Sarah? I'm great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as you know, I've had the privilege of monitoring your work from up close for a number of years, being that Mm -hmm. we both live in Silver Spring, and I've gotten to attend some of your galas and so forth. But I want to rewind a little bit and get a sense of some of the background and really the drivers behind who you are as a person and ultimately, of course, what's brought you to where you are today. So start by telling us where you're from and and a little bit about your upbringing. Okay, so I am from White Plains, New York. I was the only Orthodox kid in my elementary, junior high school and high school. Wow, which school was that? It was Meredick Avenue School and um, Eastview Junior High School and White Plains High School. Um, my father, should rest in peace, was a chazan at Cantor. Um, a sweet, wonderful guy who, you know, barely eked out a living as a Cantor a bar mitzvah teacher in a shochet. Um, and um, they could not afford to send their children to the local um, day school, which was the Westchester Day School that did not offer scholarships in those days. Wow. So I think it made me into a fighter. Um, I really believed early on my parents were both wonderful people, and I got a beautiful role models of what Judaism was from the home. And I think part of the reason... I fight so passionately for the survival of Israel and our people is because I carry the name of my aunt that was killed by the Nazis in Auschwitz, although I I later learned that she never actually made it to Auschwitz. She was, when the Nazis invaded Worcester, Poland, which was the little shtetl that she was from, they used it as a transit place and they were so anxious to kill Jews that um, they had her dig a hole and, you know, strip down naked and she was mowed down into the hole. And that's why I could never find her name in the U.S. Holocaust Museum or in Yad Vashem 
And um, there are still unmarked graves of many Jews that we don't know about. But she was never given the opportunity to advocate for herself. So, you know, I felt like we have to advocate for Jews that can't, you know, advocate for themselves all around the world. Wow, incredible. I, I just uh, had the privilege of interviewing uh, Rabbi Marvin Heyer of the Wiesenthal Center and uh, very similar echoes, although, you know, from a different generation, and, but the same idea of feeling that sense of responsibility. Right. This is uh, very powerful. I just, you know, going back to your childhood, did your parents give you any kind of formal Jewish education? Yeah, we went to a Talmud Torah. I mean, and Talmud Torahs, especially the way they were run in those days, I haven't looked into them now, but they were kind of breeding grounds for assimilation. Most kids did not want to be there. Their friends were out playing ball or, you know, going to Girl Scouts, you know, and, and they didn't feel, um, they felt like this was their free time. Um, many of the, the teachers were very otherworldly that we had, you know, straight out of Europe. Um, meanwhile, we were getting a really great secular education. And so I feel that a lot of the people that sent their kids there did it out of a sense of obligation. But, you know, certainly where I went, I was probably the only Orthodox kid in this Orthodox Talmud Torah because most of the other people just joined the shul because it was the cheapest one to join. Right. <laughs> and so it wasn't a, a, a very enticing introduction to Judaism, but my parents were remarkable people, and um, my mother, should rest in peace, always opened up her Shabbat table to guests, and um, my mother and my father always had a steady stream of Balei Shuvot that came to our house, young people, you know, and um, my father was like an exemplary of what a good moral human being was. And, you know, every time, you know, I came across a moral dilemma in my childhood or growing up, he had the exact right word of Torah on his lips. Wow. And, you know, Maybe, we, would he sing it or just? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, he would just say it. And we would learn the ethics of the father together during the summer, you know, from Pesach on. And I felt that was probably where I got my best Jewish education. Wow, just that personal example, which is really the time-honored tradition over the, you know, the generations of you really stretch back in time. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. Unfortunately, I think tragically, your depiction of the, sort of the after-school Hebrew school model as, uh, you know, a less than inspiring milieu uh, has not changed much. I, I often joke, although sadly, uh, that on campus I'm running a Hebrew school recovery program That's great. <laughs> for so That's many great. kids who just, you know, we're kind of forced to go through the motions. Right, right. So sad. So sad. Did you feel that you in your position at that time coming from a more involved or engaged Jewish home, were you kind of like a beacon for the other kids? Mm, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, um, you know, I was a normal teenager who wanted acceptance and conformity. I don't think it was until I went to Israel way back, which just shows what a dinosaur I am. Um, I started university, Hebrew University in 1971, 72. And um, 
as a four-year-old. Yeah, right, 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 which, yeah, you know, and as an 18-year-old, you do the math, that was when I realized just how precious our legacy really was and had other other friends. I mean, Hebrew University was certainly, you know, no huge magnet for Orthodox Jews in those days, but I at least appreciated, you know, my our people, the sense of peoplehood more. In fact, I graduated White Plains High School, I think very, very liberal, feeling politically speaking liberal, and feeling, you know, a proud, proud of who I was. But I think in those days, I saw religion more as a hindrance between people, to be really honest. And I had to mature because of all of the peer influences. I had to mature on my own to appreciate what religion actually was. It's interesting, you know, I guess when a person is in a, uh, an environment where they are in the minority or in the, in the significant minority, you can kind of go one of two ways. You can either really become strengthened and emboldened with your own position, mm-hmm. or you can kind of, you know, seek naturally to sort of blend in. And it sounds like the latter was the case for you in high school. Right, right. But it wasn't until I, I had a few experiences when I was in Israel. Um, the first, the first Friday night I, I was there, a group of friends and I walked to the hotel and newly liberated, right at that time. Newly liberated at the time. It was Friday night. I just, you know, and I felt like, I, you know, I was feeling my own oats, and someone said, hey, why don't we walk to the hotel, which was newly liberated. I was newly liberated. It was such a, a, a great experience, but we had like three separate experiences that, that, and just that walk there where people were trying to throw rocks, and this was early on, 71, 1971, and as someone tried to run us off a cliff, another a separate thing. Oh, my just like a lot of you know somebody like tried to grab me as i was walking there there were three separate experiences that made me realize hey you know this is not all love and peace that there are people out there that actually really despise us um so you know i a lot of things happened to wake me up when i realized that i couldn't embrace all of humanity and i wanted to start by embracing my people an old uh, expression that they, what they call a, a neocon is someone who is mugged by reality. Right, exactly, exactly. Or in your case, maybe stoned by it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were we really came close, and I, I think all of us were shocked. And I don't know if anybody actually spoke to anyone about it, but that one that first night, and there were many things that had happened. Plus. You know, I knew a lot of my friends whose parents were Holocaust survivors. Sure. And I got to know also their parents, whether or not they were Holocaust survivors, who built the state, you know. And it was an amazing time to be in Israel between the 1967 war and the 1973 war when everything was like heady and new and you could go visit places like the hotel and go you know down to Sharm el Sheikh and the Sinai and up to Kenetra and, and Syria and there was this sense of invincibility that, and there was this sense that I, I wish your generation and others could feel of the march of history from the evil of the Holocaust 
to the rightness of, you know, the Jewish state and the Jewish people, which, you know, unfortunately, most people of your generation and younger are filled with moral ambiguity about the rightness of Israel's cause. Right. Now, was Israel something that was strongly imbued in your consciousness early on? Was it something your parents were involved with? Absolutely. I mean, I remember the 1967 war as though it was yesterday. You know, I was only 14 in June of 1967, but it was the only time that we kept the television on throughout Shabbat. You know, and we were, we couldn't sleep. We thought that, you know, Israel's survival hung in a balance and knowing, I mean, our, our Shabbat table was deeply imbued with intellectual and philosophical and theological conversations all the time and knowing what our people had gone through only to be eliminated like that, you know, was, was would have been horrific. And we took the bus down to Washington when there was a great big rally. And, you know, it was a very, very pivotal part part of my life. Wow. But it sounds like you didn't actually visit Israel until college. No, we couldn't afford it. I went to Hebrew University on a scholarship. Even they even paid for the... The airfare. Wow. <laughs> right. Right. Now, was, that, was that straight out of high school or was that like a junior yeah, year abroad? It was straight out of high school. So you went there as your four-year college? I was part of the Mahina program because I didn't have enough of a Hebrew background. But then after I learned enough Hebrew, I was going to you know, take the entrance exam to get in. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. yeah so that was your choice point. going there instead of an American school, I would imagine. Right, right. But it was, it was just... It was always very, very important to me, even though there were these tugs when I was a, ch- a child and an adolescent to just blend in. I think deep down inside, I always knew who I was. Right. So now, did you consider after after finishing Hebrew U, did you consider just staying? Oh, yeah. yeah, I did. I did. I, I was actually, I, I didn't finish Hebrew U. I transferred to Boston University and then Barnard College. I got my master's at Columbia University. So what did I... I really um, would have stayed, but I met my husband. And oh, man. American. Gotta and, go blame him. There go. Right, right. It was a long bus. I, I missed the bus on um, Bat Ram. It was a long bus ride from Bat Ram to Harrison Finn. By the time I got to Harrison Finn, I realized we were either going to be best friends or get married. <laughs> right, and we're both now, which is really wonderful. Oh. So, yeah, but we, we still have Israel in our sights all the time. And, and every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, think that we're going to make Aliyah. <laughs> I'm sure you will in the right time. Right. Uh, so it sounds like, did you study political science? Like, what was, what did I you actually... I studied philosophy. Interesting. I, interesting. I studied philosophy, and then I, I and, and English literature, those were my two majors as an undergrad, and I got my two masters in psychology. I worked as a school psychologist for about 10 years for Montgomery County Public Schools, okay. which comes in really handy on Capitol Hill. But I have always read everything there is to read about Israel in the Middle East. And um, then in September of 1993, when the Oslo Accords were signed between um, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat and Bill Clinton, you know, as that, the, that I do remember in my generation. So right, right. I remember in uh, high school they pulled us all out into the 
lounge and they put the TV on and, and showed us the ceremony on the on the White House lawn. Right. Well, then um, I had been working as a volunteer for a women's pro-Israel political action committee called WINPAC. And three gentlemen from Yitzhak Shamir's um, office, Yessi Benarone, who was the director general of Yitzhak Shamir's office, and Yura Mettinger, who was um, the minister of congressional affairs, and Yigal Carmon, who worked then for Israeli intelligence, basically the Shin Bet, and got information about Yasser Arafat to Yitzhak Shamir's um, administration called me and they said that they were no longer in power, but they knew that Arafat wasn't going to live up to one iota of the accords that he had just signed. And they asked if I would be their emissary on Capitol Hill, passing out information of what it was that Arafat would be saying to his own people wow. in Arabic. And I said, it'll be an honor and a privilege. Just don't pay me anything and don't give me any notoriety. And I did that for several years. And that's how I kind of got hoisted full fulcrum into, you know, the, the eye of the storm of the debate. And I'm like a school psychologist by nature. I'm a <laughs> It was really hard for me to be part of the opposition, you know, and it still is. I'm not a confrontational person by nature, but I felt that it was really important to get the truth out. So I did that on Capitol Hill for many years. And just then, as a volunteer. Just as a volunteer. And then um, um, one, one organization called me and asked me to be their national policy coordinator, um, which I was for the ZOA for a number of years. And then another organization, the American Jewish um, Congress, asked me to be their director of um, governmental legislative affairs, which I was for a number of years. And then I realized I had to start my own organization for a whole number of reasons. Right. And I want to ask you about that, but it sounds like you really just learned the whole Capitol Hill lobbying game kind of on the fly without any training. No training. <laughs> all about relationships. It's not so hard. I mean, you know, being a school psychologist was really the most important training because it's all about gaining trust and being honest and knowing your facts and coming prepared. And that's all, you know, and that's essentially, you know, and just knowing like how far you can push people in terms of accepting uh, a different point of view and not always feeling like you're going to win every battle, but that you've just, you've scored a few points for your people. You might not have taken them so far as to make them registeredly kudniks, but you have taken them to understand and accept what it is that Israel's up against, et cetera. Right. Did you have any mentors in the political arena that helped you kind of learn the, at least the, the basic landscape? Yeah, I think the, my biggest mentor was your mentor who was the Minister of Congressional Affairs. And he he's the one, he, he took me aside once in Washington and he told me who friends are and foes are and who I should be working with most closely. Um, so he was certainly my biggest mentor and still is to this day about many things, many truths that he has been trying to 
hit home about, such as the fact that the left has tried to scare people for immediate quick withdrawals, saying that the Palestinian womb is the greatest demographic time bomb. And it's, it's just not true. You know, that the Israelis, miraculously, even secular Israelis, are, their birth rate is going up as the Israeli Arabs and the Palestinians' birth rate is going down. And that we should not be convinced to make some precipitous um, moves out of Judea and Samaria that will put all of Israel at risk because of this, you know. Alarmism. Right, right. Right. So, obviously, as you alluded to, at some point, you felt that you had kind of exhausted your utility, I guess, within some of these larger pre-existing organizational frameworks and decided to strike out on your own. And that, that must have been a very difficult choice for you to make. And I know it, it you know, at least to a whole new slew of challenges. What was that about? Why, why did you see a need to, to strike out on your own? I really wanted... Jewish organizations to be run by Jewish values and how they treat their fellow human being and, you know, in terms of actually speaking the truth and not being self-serving, but really looking for the good of Am Yisrael. And so without going into any details, which I prefer, We don't want to disparage anyone or get you in trouble. But, anyone, right. But tell us in the positive sense what you, what you wanted to do. I, in a positive sense, I really felt that there were so many stories that were not being told. And I didn't, I didn't want it to be all about one person, about me, or about, you know, how great, you know, I am, but about how great the state of Israel is and what the enormous obstacles are that they have to confront daily. Um, and that basically is pretty much what led to that decision. Right, and obviously, again, without, you know, naming names or anything, but it sounds like, and, and maybe if I can even broaden the point to organizations more generally, it sounds like you were concerned about, and one in general could be concerned about, organizations that are sort of extensions of or, or kind of cults of personality exactly. as, opposed, as opposed to sort of exactly. mission-driven Exactly. I mean, we've, right. I mean, we've seen, it's been incredibly disappointing to see how many people have run over to Qatar um, recently, you know, and accepted all sorts of money. And, you know, this is not right. This is not, you know, Qatar, which is the armpit of nations, you know, who basically welcome Hamas, you know, into their capital. And, you know, have certainly done a tremendous amount in terms of funding terrorism against people. And, you know, there's just been, we got to think about Amistral, not about just one one person or one organization. And it's not us against them. It should be us together. We have to think, you know, about uniting together. There are a lot of good organizations that are focusing on small issues and we can unite together the broader good. So to be clear, you're, you're suggesting I divest from my Qatari holdings. <laughs> yes. uh, I know you're living in this huge mansion. Yes. Right. My palatial oh, rabbinic. Uh, right. Because I'm paying your wonderful rabbinic salary. Right. Yeah. right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so curious, you know, as someone myself who's been involved in kind of a startup culture of an organization, 
I understand, you know, coming as an insider, as you were, sort of who had experienced the inner workings of organizational life, maybe some of those frustrations or limitations, and you had a clear vision for how you wanted to function differently. But mm-hmm. how were you able to make that case to others? I would imagine that so many people turned to you and said, Sarah, we have you know, this organization and that organization, right, right, APAC, exactly. CPAC, JPEC, CPAC. We still do. I'm sure you still do, although now as you've matured, I'm sure you've, you, know, you make your case through your actions and right. it becomes easier with time. But right. especially when you were starting out, how did you even create any traction with donors, with uh, investors, so to speak, in, in the ideological Right, story? right. It was very difficult. Our first major in investment, thank God, was through the Adelson Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was, you know, fortunate enough to become a member of the leadership of the Republican Jewish Coalition, and that is how I knew Miriam Adelson, and I had arranged um, a meeting with her and wrote a series of proposals. And, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. They give us a very specific amount each year, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. In the scheme of the donations they give to other organizations, it is not much. But Less than the 70 million they just gave birthright? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what they give most other organizations, but it, and it still means tremendous, and they've sustained it throughout the years. Um, and, you know, that has, you know, that gave us our first boost. And that, and we did it so that we could start the um, Dr. Miriam and Sheldon G. Adelson seminar series, which we have on Capitol Hill each month, where we bring in my brain trust of friends. And I've been really blessed that I have really brilliant, wonderful friends that speak for me, usually without an honorarium because they love what we do. And, you know, and I had already garnered a huge amount of friends from Capitol Hill who, you know, would always welcome me into their office. And I was able to simultaneously work on several issues that, you know, I knew were, they were important to me and, and they were important to our donor base. You know? Right. So, so if I was a uh, prospective donor, again, once I do, uh, you know, divest from my, my Qatari holdings and, uh, <laughs> and cash out over there. So how would you explain where Emmet fits into the broader firmament of mm-hmm. pro-Israel advocacy organizations? Okay. Well, first of all, we are center-right. And, you know, there are things that, that APAC does that I really appreciate. They get the Iron Dome and the David Sling, which helps my children and grandchildren alive in Israel, you know, and uh, as well as seven and a half million other people in Israel, close to eight million by now, um, if you count the Israeli Arabs and Palestinians. So I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I had differences with APAC over issues such as the Muslim Brotherhood and, and even things such as the Taylor Force Act, APEC was very late in the game supporting. Um, you know, there have been many issues that we've been working on for years and years and years, like the pursuit of justice for American victims of Palestinian terrorism, which APEC would not support. Um, we worked very, very closely 
um, with certain members of the administration on a, particularly on issues of education, of what's going on on college campuses. These are things that APAP will not support. We're very concerned about the Middle Eastern Studies programs in the United States, which are given to universities through a grant process. They're American taxpayers funded, many of them, but not all of them. And in order to get the grants, they have to do teacher training workshops for teachers of kindergarten through 12th grade and they're so highly biased, and we, we call this trickle-down propaganda. Um, and we're working with the Department of Education right now on this issue, and have had a couple of excellent meetings with them. We're right now, I had worked to make an amendment called Title VI of the Higher Education Act on how these grants are supposed to be dispersed, and this amendment was in 2008 and the Obama administration ignored it. And now with the Trump administration, they're actually, I mean, we've had a few good meetings and they're going to earmark some of these changes and make sure that there's at least a diversity of perspectives within the classroom. And they're looking for the university to demonstrate that there's a diversity of perspectives before they give further grants to them. And it might not show a radical change in the teaching, but uh, incrementally, as the universities begin to notice why their grants are not being renewed, you know, and they will be told. Talks. Yes, exactly. So, so, you know, these are things that, you know, it's taken a lot of persistence and a lot of time to work on these sorts of issues and make changes. But these are things that no other organization has been working on. And we're not dropping the ball. I was just in Israel last week. And I met with Arnold Roth, whose daughter Malki was killed in, uh, on August 1st, 2001 in the Sparrow. Sparrow, uh, sure. You know, there are things we're just not going to give up on. You know, his daughter's um, killer, Ahlem Tamimi, unfortunately, was one of 1,000, um, I think, 16 terrorists that were released. And Yes, yes. And... And Ahlan Tumimi has been welcomed as a hero in Jordan. Now, APAC doesn't want to touch this because Jordan and Israel have a very, very cold peace, but a peace it is nonetheless. And, you know, this woman is hiding in plain sight. And um, we've worked very, very hard to have an indictment issued against her. It was finally uncovered um, in 2017, but we've you know, been working and working um, to make sure that there is a warrant for her arrest that's issued, et cetera. So, you know, those kinds of things take a lot of persistence. And um, sometimes you have to take a principled stance because, you know, you wonder what good is a piece if, you know, they lionize killers of, you know, American civilians, but more, more so she's been lionized because she killed Jews. What's been your position on, you talked about sort of contrasting Emmet with organizations that really focus on bipartisanship, whereas you expressly identify as center-right, how do you deal with the invariable shifting sands in Washington and, and the fact that a plurality really is necessary uh, to get things done? That's right. You know, at any given time, but certainly over the, the larger trajectory of time. 
That's an excellent question. I mean, the truth is that we work really hard reaching across the aisle and we get in there. I mean, as you know, as you were at our last dinner, we honored Josh Gottheimer, who's an excellent liberal Democrat um, from Teaneck, New Jersey. And he does, you know, understand and appreciate that this is much too precious an issue for it to be a partisan issue. And we want to keep it as a bipartisan issue. And it's necessary. It's hard, become harder and harder to be able to get liberal Democrats on board for things which used to be just, you know, very easy to get an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. And we see that the base, unfortunately, of the Democratic Party is not the same base that it used to be. And I know that there's a woman, Alexandria um, Octavia Cortez, who just won against Joe Crowley right. in New York's 14th district, who has, you know, railed against the silence of people against the massacre, the alleged massacre of Palestinians by the Israelis, you know, this is really dangerous. And I think the, the antidote to this is education, education, education to get in there. You know, even if I'm not going to get them to sign the dotted line on certain pieces of legislation, to at least have them feel a little empathy for what it is that the Israelis are going through. You know, and I'm not sure we can do it. It's a very polarized America right now. And unfortunately, you know, Donald Trump to many Democrats is radioactive. And anything that's too closely associated with Donald Trump, and unfortunately, you know, as much as we applaud and will continue to applaud and reinforce everything that he's done for Israel, we worry that eventually the White House is going to go into Democratic hands and they might run in the other direction. So I think it is incredibly important for organizations such as ourselves to continue to reach out to Democrats, to try to get a sympathetic ear in each office, and to hope, you know, that they are not going to be so blinded by um, prior biases against the state of Israel so that they won't listen to our point of view and will give us a hearing. Right. And I guess a hearing is all you can really ask for. You know, right. Once you're in there, you can hopefully make your case. Um, you know, I guess the way that I've most closely observed the organization is through these incredible gala dinners that you host each year in Washington. Um, I believe you call them the Ray of Light or Rays of Light dinner. And what I think is so unique about them is that you're not just honoring kind of your run-of-the-mill members of the tribe, insiders, but you really honor an incredibly diverse array of politicians, advocates, activists, champions of Israel in a broad variety of ways. Tell me a little bit about how that dinner or that concept, really, that theoretical construct developed and emerged, and why is that important to you to highlight? Well, when I started AMET, and let's see, we're 13 years old, in 2005, right? In 2005, um, and even today, I'm very, very close friends with Steve Emerson. He was a journalist. He did investigative work on terrorism. In fact, his organization is called the Investigative Project on Terrorism. And um, I had noticed that there were a few people that he would occasionally mention 
who had been Muslim themselves or had come from, you know, Muslim backgrounds or Muslim dominated societies, even if they were Christian. And I noticed that they have somehow found the courage to stand up against the majority and to tell the truth about radical Islam, you know, and many of them had been discommunicated from their families and homes um, and certainly from, from their communities and their places of worship. And um, many of them had death threats, Islamic death threats or fatwas placed on their heads. And I thought that these were incredibly courageous people, you know, who, you know, it's easy for me as an Orthodox Jew to criticize radical Islam. You know, I have a community that will accept this, but to go against the grain like that. So the first year I ended up honoring many because I didn't realize I would be in business for so long. <laughs> you have to squeeze them all in. <laughs> I squeezed them all in and everybody that I could find, which was, you know, um, Noni Darwish, you know, for Arabs for Israel and she's had a number of wonderful organizations. Bridget Gabrielle, who is a Lebanese Christian um, for Act for America. You know, and so many, the very first a year, and I think there were about five. And every year I've managed to find at least one incredibly brave people. This year, um, Khalid Abu Tani was our honoree. I did end up giving him the award in Jerusalem. He unfortunately was not able to make it in the last minute, but um, he writes beautifully criticizing both Fatah and Hamas as a Muslim um, Israeli Arab, you know, who comes from East Jerusalem, now lives in West Jerusalem, thank God, but for his own protection. Right. Uh, you know, he's a He's an, an outstanding intellectual, and now he's writing, once again, for the Jerusalem Post, and he writes for Gatestone, and he's written for the Times of Israel, and um, JNS, and every other good publication, and tells the truth about radical Islam, and he tells the truth about the hypocrisy of both Fatah and Hamas. And, um, you know, I adore these people. I think these people are incredibly heroes in the, the fight against radical Islam, which is the 21st century scourge. You know, this is really just like our parents' generation or your grandparents, but my parents had to fight Nazism and communism. I think radical Islam has an equally sinister and more subtle assault on Western civilization. And it's we have to, you know, be very, very careful in how we deal with it, you know, which brings me to one of my, my favorite issues, and that's the conundrum of being an American who appreciates religious freedom, you know, and understands the rights of religious minorities growing up as a religious minority, right. and, and wants people to feel free to wear their yarmulke or their shador or burqa when they walk on the street, and they feel, you know, that People should be able to pray to God any way they choose. And if they don't want to eat pork, you know, wonderful. If they don't want to gamble or drink liquor, wonderful. But when they feel that their religion is means submission, which is what Islam means, and they want to create an Islamic caliphate, and that that is part of their 
their agenda, then we have to be very careful. We don't want our constitutional liberties to actually be superseded by um, an Islamic agenda. And that's where the rubber meets the road, and it's very difficult. Right. It's a thorny intellectual and political issue. Right. You know, you're talking about all these amazing, courageous people who you have honored, highlighted at these dinners. Just by way of illustration, can you identify one or two who kind of most stand out in your mind, sort of uber heroic or just the most memorable uh, of, of this tremendous group? Yes. And that is somebody who considers me mama. His name, <laughs> he calls me his Jewish mother. Sarah, you can't pick your own children. I should have made that clear. <laughs> right, right, right. His name is Mosel Hussein Yosef. And he was the son of the founder of Hamas. Son of Hamas, the, the, the book. Yeah. And he read the book. If you read it in paperback, he's thanked me for saving his life. And it was because of this dinner that I, I read a book review about him in the Wall Street Journal. And I wrote the reviewer. And he said, maybe the best way to, because uh, I wanted to honor him. And he said, probably the best way to get through to him is through a certain journalist from Haaretz who interviewed him. So I, I contacted the journalist and I managed to invite him to our dinner. I think it was in 2014, maybe 2013, but um, quite a few years ago to be honored. And um, they were about to, I did unbeknownst to me, but he, his shin bet handler, called me up and said, can I come to the dinner as well? Because they are about to deport him. ICE was about to deport him back to Ramallah. Oh, goodness. And that's a death sentence, I would imagine. That's a death sentence. And I, and the Shin Bet handler, um, Gonen Ben Yitzchak, who is still my friend, as is Mossab, um, did something incredibly courageous. He came to the dinner and he came out publicly at the dinner and said that he was a Shindek handler. And because of Mossab's actions, thousands of Palestinian as well as Jewish lives had been saved. And he wasn't supposed to come out. That is absolutely forbidden by the Shindek. And he knew that, that he wasn't going to be fired by the Shindek, but he couldn't let him be um, sent back to Ramallah where it would, would have been a death sentence. So he did that, and I got a letter going on Capitol Hill, and I had all of our friends sign the letter to the ICE deportation judge, and I got, it was a bipartisan letter in those days, it was easier, Right. and I don't remember, I think it was 42 members of Congress signed it to the deportation judge, and I ghost wrote a letter for James Woolsey, which he signed to the deportation judge, saying that as a former director of the CIA, um, he felt that if we sent back Mossad, this will forever compromise our ability to work with counter-terrorists because uh -huh. we were sentencing him to death. Undermine the credibility, right. And the deportation judge basically said, you know, I've changed my mind. And they were both, since they were both, you know, both Bonin and Mossad said they were both sure he was going you know, sent back. That's the way the, the ICE people had spoken to him to get ready to be sent back. Right. So, you know, he, we, in fact, 
two days after my dinner, he had wanted to meet with me, but I was flying to Israel because he happened to be in Washington for something else. So this was just like, you know, in June, on June 14th. And we're still very, very close friends. And, you know, whenever I have self-doubts, I remember that I have done something very meaningful in my life and I managed to save his life. So that's, yeah. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. So that story certainly stands out as probably, you know, the most astonishing. You know. Unbelievable. Now, Sarah, in starting to sort of wrap up, um, how have you grown or changed through this process? It's such a, uh, an amazing life journey, 13 years of this work after, you know, a career of doing many other things. Right. What has this done for you or to you? Well, I certainly, I had always considered myself rather shy. <laughs> and, um, you know, just, I've always, but when it comes to taking a principled stance on unpopular issues, where a voice needs to be heard, I've surprised myself. You know, I was, you know, raised, you know, as the youngest in a, a family of, you know, wonderful towering intellects. I was literally the youngest, the shortest, the shyest, you know, and somehow, but when I realized that there were words that had to be said that nobody else was willing to say, I just would raise my hand in so many forums you know, there was once a forum in another um, think tank where they brought in Tanzine Terrace and they introduced these four Tanzine Terrace as the moderate alternative then to Arafat. And I raised my hand and asked tough questions to them and, realized, and everybody in the room realized that these people were not going to do anything different, you know. And there was another forum where they were talking about maps of withdrawals from territories and how much land had to be given up. And I always carry with me a map of Palestine, which is all of Israel. And I said, it really does not matter how much energy, effort, and expense you go into making these maps, as long as this map is being taught in the Palestinian schools, then none of these withdrawals are really going to mean anything, you know, and make peace. I've shocked myself that, you know, when push comes to shove and nobody's willing to ask these tough questions or make these tough statements, I do it. So I've shocked myself because I still think of myself as shy and somehow insecure. And I, and I do still, as much as I try, when somebody says something negative to me, that's the thing that's internalized, not the positive thing, you know, right? Right. But, you know, but that's just who I am, you know, and um, it's okay. You know, I just feel like I got it. I keep putting one foot in front of the other and I keep on going and go into these arenas where I'm probably the only person that has views that are classical Zionist views but I feel that somebody has to say these things, so I keep going. Well, you know, you talk about the courage of the people you're honoring, but I think that's really just a reflection of the courage that you yourself have demonstrated and, and uh, expressed. Sarah, what's next in the Emmet chapter? What's next for you personally? Do you have kind of a new frontier you're looking to, to conquer, right. or is it kind of just more of the same right. and bigger right. and better? 
Well, right now we're working a lot on what's going on with Turkey. Erdogan is a brute and a thug who um, has arrested 50,000 people. And, you know, just on June 24th, um, he solidified his power. And in April 2017, he essentially um, passed a referendum or a referendum was passed, which consolidates more power in his hands. And we see um, that he is a danger and we're very concerned about the sale of 100 F-35 very sophisticated stealth missile jets to um, Turkey. And we've been trying to work against it. And, and some, for some reason, one was handed all over about two weeks ago on American soil to the Turks, and they are studying it, and we don't like this, and we're, we're spending a lot of time on that issue. Um, you know, we're very, very concerned about what's going on in southern Syria, and although there has been some kind of an agreement that the Iranian forces have to leave southern Syria. It seems as though Assad has given Hezbollah and the IRGC Syrian uniforms, and um, we're very afraid of what's going on on Israel's northern border. We're extremely concerned on the ongoing onslaught from Gaza to the territories right around Gaza and what the, and the, I don't like to say post-traumatic stress syndrome because it's current traumatic stress that all the people that have to live with these missiles, it's not reported. We've been writing a little bit about this. There's a lot on our plate. I am also a little concerned about what President Trump, as wonderful as he's been, what he has in terms of this ultimate peace deal um, right. and, you know, so there's, there's a lot coming up just on the horizon and we've got our hands full of all the issues that we have to be working on. Well, it sounds like this is the perfect job for a Jewish mother. There's a lot to worry about. <laughs> well, Sarah, close by telling us, you know, what, what's the most hopeful or promising thing that you've seen? You just came back from Israel, I think a couple of days ago yourself. What? excites you and energizes you about what's going on in Israel today? The resiliency, the people in Israel, the spirit, the optimism quotient, the wealth, I mean, the high-tech wealth that, that, you know, all of these new industries that have come in, American industries that are trying to buy Israeli corporations, and, you know, it's just unbelievable. And even though, like, you know, I said to my son-in-law, who was a lone soldier and will always be in Milouim, like there might be a war coming up soon. He said, yes, we're aware. They don't care. They do what they have to do. They don't sit in fear and trembling. The spirit of, I think, the overwhelming bulk of the people, you know, want to serve um, in the IDF and they try out for the most, in high school, they still keep trying out for the most dangerous units of combat. And the nationalism, I think, is really, for the most part, are totally united about the rightness of their cause. And I didn't see this during the height of Oslo. And I think most people do understand since the Gaza withdrawal, that, you know, if you don't like what happened to Gaza, they're not going to make the same mistakes with Judea and Samaria. So that's very, very encouraging to me.
Well, it sounds like these qualities of optimism and resilience, uh, again, are qualities that you've also expressed in faith. And thank you for your amazing service to Israel, to the Jewish people, and wishing you tremendous success for many years moving forward. Sarah Stern, thank you so much for joining us. It was an honor and a privilege. Thank you, Ari. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.